hospitalizations and deaths are on the rise in the wake of record coronavirus cases. But case rates themselves are now turning the corner in our region, begging the question, what's in store after this Omicron wave? Omicron is different and at times confusing. On one hand, it's less severe. A CDC study says the variant is 91% less likely to kill you than Delta and 75% less likely to send you to the intensive care unit. On the other hand, Omicron is so transmissible, it's causing more hospitalizations than ever before and sparking a staff shortage in virtually every industry. This week, I talked to Andrew Pekosh, a virologist at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He explains this vexing variant and what may happen after we get through this winter surge. With so many people getting COVID right now and with the Omicron variant, a lot of people are gaining some sort of immunity. And me as a layperson, I think, hmm, is it possible that Omicron could be this darkness before the dawn of this pandemic? Is that just wishful, tired and hopeful thinking? Well, it's hopeful thinking, but we actually have some data suggesting that that may actually be the case. So wow. we've been looking at, we meaning the scientific community in general, but also my laboratory has been looking at people who've been vaccinated and then get an Omicron infection. And it really seems like if you get infected after being vaccinated, your immune response is not only very high, but it's also what we call broad, meaning that it starts to recognize all the previous variants that have been circulating almost as well as it recognizes your vaccine strain. So we do think that infection on top of vaccination is probably the safest way to get this really strong immunity because you've got the protection from the vaccine to start with. But the infection is now working with the vaccination to give you an even better outcome than either infection alone or vaccination alone. Mm, Right. That's that dawn that we hope for. So if we could actually drive more into this dawn of this analogy, what evidence do we have that tells us, you know, we might be better off after this huge surge we're seeing? If we could just drive into that a little bit more, because I think we've heard a lot, oh, it's going to get better than Delta. Oh, it's going to get better than Omicron. So what's the evidence now that might suggest that? Let's stay in the dark for a little bit here first. I think it's important to note that the case numbers that we're all seeing here in the U.S. are underestimates of the actual number of cases and they may be underestimates by a really large factor. So we're seeing even more cases than we think we are out there. And what that means is we're getting more and more of that really strong immunity that I talked about at the beginning of the podcast, and more people are having that strong immunity. And so that speaks to something that I call population immunity. And population immunity is what we see with influenza a lot. And it's, it's the fact that people have some immune responses that dampen severe disease, and therefore the disease never seems as severe as it used to be because everybody's got some level of immunity. That may not apply to special groups like the elderly, for instance, who we know are very susceptible to severe COVID. There are also a, a number of medical conditions that predispose you to severe COVID. So Omicron and future variants may be of higher risk to those people, but to the general population, this population immunity is going to dampen disease severity, but it won't eliminate spread of the virus. And that's what population immunity is different from when people say herd immunity. Herd immunity is really, you get enough immunity so the virus can't spread. 
in a population. I don't think we'll ever get there, but we will get to this concept of population immunity that limits the spread a little bit, but more importantly, limits disease severity. Right. Okay. So now we've got a solid grasp on, you know, what might be our future as far as this pandemic, as far as the virus and how our immune system reacts and how the virus itself reacts. So now let's move on to how us as a society react to the realities of this virus. Last week, we saw some outside aides to President Biden call for this new normal where it was important for the administration to shift their thinking of COVID to move it similar to RSV and the flu. Is that the sort of public health perspective that you think will happen? And do you support that? I think eventually it will. For me personally, being at a school of public health, looking at the situation right now, it's hard to really talk too much about what we'll be doing two or three months because efforts really have to be made to limit the spread of the virus right now. But I do feel like, I think many scientists have thought for a long time that we were going to be living with SARS-CoV-2 and its disease, COVID-19, for a long period of time, if not sort of forever. And I think the surge in Omicron is just showing us that, yes, this virus is now here to stay. This virus has evolved to now infect and spread between people incredibly efficiently. And when you've got a virus that spreads that efficiently, there's no way that you can really eliminate it from the population. So I think once we get through this Omicron surge, I think this thinking is really going to be, how do we deal with this better as a long-term threat? And I think the first conversation that really has to get started is sort of rethinking our vaccination policy against COVID-19, moving away from what we have been doing, which is trying to get short-term immunity to protect the population and thinking about what's the best way to vaccinate people that gives them long-term immunity, two years, three years, five years of immunity. Because some of these, particularly the mRNA vaccines, have the potential to really give much longer immunity if used in the right way. And so I think that's the mindset that is going to be first and foremost on people's minds when we get out of this Omicron surge. Got it. And so on the other side of this Omicron surge, would you characterize that time as becoming endemic? Are we really living in this transition between pandemic and endemic? Absolutely. This is now probably going to be that transmission where we've seen what we hope is the final massive surge. And at this point in time going forward, we're going to be seeing a more controlled, a very different kind of COVID-19 disease, something that we'll eventually call our seasonal outbreaks or our endemic viruses. And again, the nomenclature will switch from pandemic to epidemic or outbreaks, depending on how big the case numbers are. Right. Okay. So moving from this kind of future perspective and maybe this even policy perspective, I'd like to now focus on the personal and now. So I think there is this sense of almost resignation and resignment towards this virus. Like, man, this virus is spreading so fast. Like, it's just a matter of time before I get this. Why is it even worth being cautious? You know, on a personal level, there's just kind of this honest, like, oh, man. So as a public health expert, how do you recommend people deal with that honest feeling? Is it time to be okay to be resigned? Or is it still time to be cautious? Yeah, we, especially here in the US, I think we really have to get control of this Omicron surge. One of the things that's different about the US from countries like South Africa, or some of the European countries, is that not only do we have lower vaccination rates in this country, but 
they're also very unevenly spread around the country, right? So there are some states that have 70, 75% of the population vaccinated and other states that are at 40% or so, right? And so that's the variable that um, is really, really hard to quantify if we're thinking about the US as a country. One of the things I keep telling people is, Pay attention to national numbers, but pay even more attention to your local numbers, because how your city, how your county is doing with respect to case numbers is going to be much more indicative of how you should change your behavior and maybe, you know, get back to being a little bit more open as opposed to the national numbers. I I wouldn't be surprised if the national numbers stay high for a longer period of time because certain states are now going to be going up while other states are going down. So you have to think about your local population and your local case numbers when you're thinking about getting out of this surge and seeing things get a little bit more back to normal, both in terms of things like hospitals, but in terms of supermarkets. I think anybody who goes shopping has seen empty shelves because, again, the case numbers are just disrupting everything in our economy right now. Mm. Here in the you know D.C., Virginia, Maryland area, it seems as if there is some sort of leveling off. I'm not sure if we're quite there yet, but there is some leveling off. Do we expect it to fall as quick as it rose? The data from other countries shows that the case numbers can drop almost as quickly as they rise. Again, the big question here in the U.S. is what about the unvaccinated populations? And are we going to see a drop right away or are we going to see a plateau for a couple of weeks and then see the drop? I think that's the really critical thing that, um, that, that we just don't know about yet. And again, the U.S. is different from other countries because of the higher percentage of unvaccinated individuals. So the things that we've seen in South Africa, the things that we're starting to see in parts of Europe may not be directly relevant to what we see here in terms of the wrapping up of the Omicron surge. For someone who maybe is pessimistic or is not so much hopeful and they're like, oh, man, well, you know, Omicron was another variant. We might just get another variant. They'll just, you know, totally kick out all of our vaccines and all our immunity and we'll be back to square one again. What would you say to someone like that? Viruses can't change that much once they've entered a new host. And so we should be worried about the new viruses that are out there and other animals that might make it into humans. But once a virus gets into humans, it really has a much more limited place to go. So like I said, Omicron really represents the big far extreme of what we think these coronaviruses can do. So from now, I imagine that we're just going to be seeing, you know, we saw the white, we saw the black. So now we're going to be in shades of gray, as opposed to looking at a hugely major change. But again, no one wants to talk about this right now because of what we're into. But many of the scientific community still have our eye on what's the next pandemic going to be. Um, Many of us forget that in 2009, we had a flu pandemic, which was Fortunately, very mild pandemic. But now in 2019, we have another pandemic. And somewhere down the line, we're going to see something else. So Omicron is now a different kind of problem. But many scientists are still thinking about what is the next pandemic and how can we better prepare, particularly learning from what we've seen with COVID-19, how can we better prepare for the next pandemic? Yeah. And, you know, those outside aids, they talked about a medical infrastructure that needs to be created where there's real-time analysis, there's real-time sequencing, and it just doesn't exist right now. And there is this memory that will fade and there won't be as much money, you know, put towards trying to figure out this pandemic. So the medical infrastructure we need to basically 
best fight our future pandemics, what would that infrastructure look like and why is it necessary? Well, first, we need to find a way to balance you know, personal freedom and our fear of having our personal information get exposed with the public health benefits of, of monitoring for some aspects of disease in the population. So we've got to find that way to be able to say, for instance, report people who have flu-like illness, report people who have tests, um, have some capture of their demographics, right? We want to know their ages. We want to know their sex. We want to know something about their medical conditions, right? We may want to know where they live because it may be important to know where these things are. But the balance of that, um, there are two things we have to balance that with. One is not having too much of our personal information so that we don't feel like we're giving away, again, more of what our personal information is. And then we have to find a way to do it in real time because there are websites that do this. The CDC tries to keep track of this, but they update once a week. And then oftentimes they'll update their data from two and three weeks ago with more right. data. So it, at the end of a season, it gives you a great picture of what happened, but we need to be able to do this on a hour by hour basis. We need to connect all of these very different medical databases together. And I think that's the biggest challenge of, of, of that too, is the way we collect data at Hopkins is very different from when we collected from in perhaps other hospitals, even in the state of Maryland. So connecting all of those individual ways to collect data and making it easy. So those are the two things, balancing the personal information and the protection of personal information with trying to find ways to connect to existing databases to move these things into real time is, is, is the major challenge. And you know, there's technical challenges there, as well as challenges that we have to discuss in terms of right, our personal information. Right. And that would allow us to better fight pandemics? Absolutely. Because what we can then do is intervene earlier in an outbreak. Part of the problem that we've seen Omicron most recently, right, is you heard people saying, well, we found five cases. That probably means we have 25. And that's because both the monitoring and the testing lagged and was so much slower than the virus's ability to spread in the population. But, you know, could there have been ways to to monitor the spread. There's some really interesting data on monitoring wastewater for virus sequences. If you were just reporting in general, people who had a cough, for instance, um, would you have seen these large increases in people who are coughing um, before you got the Omicron positive tests? Those are the ways that I think we can find ways to identify, hey, something's going on here. Let's put some resources and try to limit it there. What we've been experiencing, and it was even true with Omicron, is let's look for Omicron cases, but because we're so lagging behind the virus, we were not able to then follow up with the interventions that would have controlled the virus. So we've got to find ways to shorten that period of time before we think there's a problem and act on a problem. Do you think that uh, this real-time public health infrastructure will actually happen or do you think people just will stop caring, you know, once there's nothing to really care about as far as the COVID pandemic? We're in the middle of a pandemic now. A year from now, when it comes to spending money on a pandemic, when case numbers aren't high, people are going to say, well, there are competing interests. There are other things that we could perhaps spend this money on rather than this pandemic that is apparently under control. And we have to fight that because... The time to invest is in between pandemics. 
that's when we can better prepare for the next one coming down the pipeline. In other words, in the dawn of this pandemic, don't forget about the darkness and trying to prevent it again. Got a lot of daylight that we can uh, make some progress in. Mm. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. On Saturday morning, the district's vaccine mandate went into effect. All residents and visitors now have to show proof of at least one COVID shot before entering most businesses. Later Saturday afternoon, Glenn Youngkin became Virginia's 74th governor. During his first day in office, he removed mask mandates in public schools across the Commonwealth. Since then, Arlington and Fairfax County Schools have issued their own mask mandates in response. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Luke Garrett. Our cover art was created by cartoonist Audrey Garrett. Our music is courtesy of Lockspeed. Join me next Monday as the world recovers.